Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Initiative podcast. It's really an honor for us to have Eddie's turn to be a guest on our show. Eddie is an Ashtanga yoga teacher, an author, a lecturer from New York City. He has a passion for engaging in a multidisciplinary approach to furthering understanding, education and access to yoga through technology, scientific research, collaboration, and encouraging diversity in all aspects of his work. He studies philosophy, Sanskrit, ritual, science, and religion. Eddie learned yoga under Sri Patabi Joyce from 91 to 2009 and remains a student of Sharad Joyce in Mysore in India. He's the board member of Black Yoga Teachers Alliance and a board chair of Life Camp that trains youth and young adults in yoga and meditation for the express purpose of supporting the reduction of gun violence in Queens, New York. He's also the founder of the Breathing app and the upcoming app and website Yoga365, which will be launched in January 2021. And to deal with environmental stress, if you can't change the environment outside, you change the environment inside. And that means to deal with fight or flight, sympathetic nervous system, and learn what the relaxation response is inside you through Shavasana. Fundamental dialogue of yoga, which is a process of self-knowing, of self-knowledge. Like, who am I? What's my purpose? What's meaning? How do I participate in this flow of life? Well, welcome, Eddie. I feel really privileged to speak to you. We tried doing this last year, but unfortunately things didn't work out, but I'm happy that we're able to do this online. So to most of our guests, we start with asking them about their religious upbringing and if uh, religion had any part to play in their life after their childhood. So we would love to hear more about your religious upbringing or, or spirituality that was associated with it. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me on your show, Nitesh. It's a pleasure to be here. I had really no religious upbringing when I was younger. I was raised in what we would call an assimilated Jewish family in New York City. And the assimilated Jews were kind of like a group of people who lived in urban areas where practicing Judaism maybe didn't seem to suit their best interests, especially after World War II. And preceding World War II in, in New York and in other cities, just being Jewish wasn't a very popular thing. So even though I was born Jewish, I wasn't raised Jewish and I wasn't going to synagogue or anything like that. But interestingly enough, my great-grandfather and my uncles and preceding my great-grandfather going back many generations, we were extremely religious on my mother's side. And there were rabbis in our family. My great-grandfather gave land for a synagogue in Pittsburgh where he lived. And, you know, he and my uncle and my great-grandmother were Zionists and they were very much in support of and, and they were actively participating in building the state of Israel. Well, my grandfather, who was my mother's father, was interested in philosophy and he was able to go to Harvard which was lucky because there was a quota on Jewish students that were allowed in Harvard at that time. I think maybe 20 or 30 Jews were allowed per year or something like that, and none were allowed to teach there. And he did his PhD in philosophy, and his dream was to be a professor at Harvard, but he couldn't because he was Jewish. So I think that that, from what I understand from my mother, was a little bit of a turning point for him. And he turned his back pretty much on Judaism. Uh, he moved to New York. He got married four times. This was not something very common at that time at all. My mother was the product of his third marriage, and he sent her to a Catholic school. So instead of being brought up as Jewish, she ended up learning all of the Christian hymns. And I grew up celebrating Easter and Christmas, uh, even though we were, we were Jewish. So my spiritual journey started when I was around 15 or 16, and it led me in a direction that I didn't identify at that time as being religious, but it was a quest to understanding what purpose and meaning was in my life. It wasn't until much later 
that I started to learn about the religious background of my family. And that was one of the things that led me to get bar mitzvahed when I turned 50 instead of when I was 13. Wow. I think it's an interesting journey to look back at who you were when you were growing up because you have different realizations. You look at the world differently. And your spiritual quest, which probably started when you said 15, it led you to India pretty quickly after that. Is that correct? It did. Yeah, I left for India when I was 20. Started doing yoga when I was 18 or 19. And by the time I was 20, I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life. But remember, this was 1987 or so. 1987, there was no job description of a yoga teacher like there is now. Now, you know, yoga teaching, the San Francisco Chronicle said yoga teaching is the new waiting tables, like anyone can do it, you know? It's your in-between job. You take a training for 200 hours, you get a certificate, you're ready. In the 1980s, there was no profession of teaching yoga. It wasn't something you did to make money. It's something you did because that's what you did. You did it as service. So I knew when I was 20 that yoga was what I wanted to do with my life, but it had nothing to do with income. Like there was no thought of how I was going to make money. You know, I'm, I'm curious back in the 80s, and I've read at a few places how things were to go to Mysore. You had to write a letter, you had to get accepted, then you went, and I'm sure you did that. But as a teenager, what was your understanding of yoga is something I'm really curious about because now there's, there is a lot of awareness of yoga. People associate yoga with asanas and go in that direction. But I'm curious in the West and in the US in the 80s, what was your understanding of yoga? My first understanding was from reading the book Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. And this was in ninth grade. And our English teacher, Mrs. Jane Benditson, I really consider to be her to be like my first guru without even knowing what she was. But she said to us, the three most important questions you can ask yourself in your life are, who am I? What am I doing here? And what do I do next? And she was very emphatic that to understand your purpose and to understand your meaning in life was the most important thing for you to do. That all the education, all of the dreams and ambitions and desires, that's fine. But first, know who you are and know what you're here for. And she drilled that into us. And I don't know how it affected the other students in the class. But for me, that was a turning point in my life because up until then, I was a really lost teenager. And for a few years after that, I continued to be a very lost teenager. But I was one who was thinking about these three questions a lot, like all the time. And because it was from Siddhartha and that was framed around meditation and around yoga, because Siddhartha, of course, did yoga before he went to meditation and had his own realization. That's what I identified it with. And when I met the first person who actually taught me yoga, his name was Ted Bioric, and we were working in a record store together. He had studied with Yogi Amrit Desai in the 1970s in Pennsylvania, received Shaktipat from him, had transcendent experiences where he was one with the universe. And he told me that the purpose of yoga was to raise your kundalini, was to attain samadhi, and then move towards liberation. And that was the purpose of yoga. And so for me, that's what yoga was. We meditated, he gave me books to read, I did some chanting, and it wasn't until I went to a yoga class that I saw people doing asanas. And when I saw that for the first time, I thought to myself, what does this have to do with yoga? Like this has nothing to do with yoga, standing on your head or doing the sun salutation. Yoga is about enlightenment. What, what are they doing all these things with their bodies? So it took me a little bit and then I started getting more interested in the asana portion of it. But my understanding, even as I began doing asanas, was somehow this needs to be related to enlightenment. And honestly, I thought that you needed to be enlightened to teach yoga. I thought you had to have raised your kundalini to be a yoga teacher, because that's my understanding from the books I was reading. So when I went to this first class, I thought my expectation was these teachers must have raised their kundalini. And that's how I walked into the game. And 
I think those are the little breadcrumbs that are thrown at people. Like your Kundalini might rise and some of the other things, the enlightenment might happen in, in different ways. But asana seems to be an entry point for a lot of people. And it's only much later that you tend to realize the different strengths that yoga brings and it becomes a way of life. And in the last 20, 30 years of your teaching, I think you've been teaching for 30 odd years probably now. Yes. Um, and you've done so much for the awareness of yoga than anyone that, that I know. But you've done it in a way that you've not just constricted yourself to the asana practice or the meditation associated with it. You've tried to bring in different elements of it, whether that's literature through the Namarupa magazine, which has been in publication for a long, long time, but also science that has been a huge element of your involvement with yoga. And I'm curious, why did science become so important? Isn't just the experience that you get when you do the practice of asana, pranayama, meditation, and that's what our ancestors and the rishis and the sages did, and they came up with the philosophies. Why was science so important to you to bring both of them together? I think that science became interesting to me because it, it's, you know, science is a language. It's a way of examining and understanding how things work and then communicating how those things work to the people you're talking to. Yoga is a language as well. Yoga is, a, as my friend Shraddhalu Ranad said, who is a devotee of Aurobindo, he lives in Pondicherry. He has basically explained to me that yoga is not a thing, but yoga is a dialogue. And it's a dialogue that began in the Vedas and moved through the Upanishads and then into the you know, Patanjali area into the Hatha yoga tradition. And that when we look from what yoga became in the, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th, up to 18th centuries with the, with the heavily oriented Hatha yoga traditions, you know, that was a, a continued dialogue from the Tantric traditions, which was a continued dialogue from the Upanishadic era, which came from the Vedas. And so what we have now and what we consider to be yoga is this you know, this communication network, which stretches back thousands of years. And as you learn more, and as times change, the modality that you're using might change a little bit, but the reason behind the thing that you're using stays consistent, but the way you do it is a little bit different. So, you know, these days, there's a lot of um, talk about modern yoga, pre-modern yoga, you know, did yoga you know, was India influenced by outside forces? This is the whole, um, you know, SOAS school in London and many of the students coming out from there are presenting this narrative to the world, and which I think is absolutely incorrect for many, many reasons. One thing that they don't look at is they don't look at the fundamental dialogue of yoga, which is a process of self-knowing, of self-knowledge. Like, who am I? What's my purpose? What's meaning? How do I participate in this flow of life? These are some of the timeless questions of India. So therefore, yoga is not a thing which can be locked into an age or a part of the history that you think you're narrating, but it's a thing which you enter into. It's a living tradition that you enter into. And that's what we call a dialogue. You know, this living tradition that you enter into, that you participate in, that you propagate, this is a dialogue. So, um, the science is a similar kind of a dialogue, and science has been around for a long time. Science existed in India thousands and thousands of years ago. You know, it existed in Greece and in Egypt and in Europe. And over time, the dialogue of science has changed. So, for example, if you read in my bio that I like to study religion and science, you know, nowadays people think that maybe those two are opposed. One is a belief system. And one is logical and rational and can be proven. But before Descartes, religion and science were very much on the same page. Aristotle and Plato, and uh, you know, go back as far as you want to, they were looking at both religion and science and the mystery of creation, the mystery of life, and also trying to measure things. So what we have now of science in the West is largely a language of measurement. And in that language of measurement, you can communicate a whole lot of interesting things. And I became interested in how do I talk about yoga in such a way 
that I can discuss the benefits, discuss the changes that can occur, discuss what it can do for people, what it can do for children, what it can do for, you know, gun violence reduction, what it can do for communities that have low access to these types of things or lack of services. You know, what can yoga do to help people? And what can yoga do to help sick people? What can yoga help to do people who aren't sick, but maybe have mental anxiety or stress or things like that? So for that to be efficacious in the West, you need to speak in the science of language. And luckily we have such a, a language. Now, I was influenced by a colleague named Marshall Higgins, who was a researcher who came into my school one day and asked me if I would help him on a research project. I had no idea about science at that point. I mean, I was probably the worst person for him to ask, but I said that I would like to do it because I'm, oh, well, always up for a challenge. But if you look to the 1920s, Swami Kuvalyananda from Kaivalyadham, you know, outside of Pune, he was doing scientific experiments on yoga, but he was doing Western scientific experiments. And he said, for those who have faith and belief in yoga, it will work for them. They don't need any other proof, but for those who you know, don't believe in it, they need measurements. And after they see measurements, then they'll believe that it works. And then they can take these practices and they can use them to make society better, healthier, more balanced, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a paraphrase of, of something that he said. So I think that I'm following in, in that tradition, even though I'm not a student of Kaivalyatam, that I'd like to use this language of science to help introduce these practices to people who need them so people can be healthier and happier. And for some, learn how to teach it and enter into this huge economic stream that yoga now has created in the West. So there's a lot of things that, that can be done. But, you know, I have to make sure that the way I talk about it is not loosey-goosey, is not new age, is not with a lot of superlatives or unprovable things, but very basic things where we can say, you know what, if you breathe in this way, it is going to downregulate your stress response and upregulate your relaxation response. Your homeostatic functions will start to come back into balance. Inflammation will reduce in your body. And you might even see a reduction in some of the diseases that are caused by inflammation. And I can say that because there's research behind it, not because I made it up. And if I can say something like that with research behind it, then maybe a school system that has a very high incidence of students acting out disciplinary problems might say, you know what, if these practices, and honestly, in the public schools in America, we don't call it yoga or meditation, we call it health and wellness practices. They might say, you know what, let's try these things and see if it calms our students down and helps them to stop acting out so much because they're acting out because they have a lot of stress, environmental stress as well, primarily actually. And so we do that. And then many of the places find, wow, this actually really works and it's not difficult to implement. So this has been a large part of what I've been doing over the past 20 years. Um, science came into the picture about 10 years ago and I fell in love with it, frankly. I'm working on research projects still. Right now I'm working with a doctor named William Bushell and we're working on a lot of interesting things in regard to some of the neural pathways that COVID is affecting and thinking about preparedness models and things like that. So whether or not we're successful, I don't know, but the, I enjoy the work, you know. As much as I enjoy memorizing mantras from the Vedas, I enjoy examining these scientific things as well. Well, thank you. I agree with you that science is a way to communicate. Science is a way which is widely accepted and people are able to understand it better. People are able to relate to it better. And the research that you're doing right now, which is extremely important for the COVID virus with what's going on and what's been happening around the world and how yoga can help, I would like you to give our listeners a little bit of background and how it can help some of the people who are not just uh, suffering from the virus, but how can they increase maybe their immunity or do some things which are proactive rather than reactive to help them in their health and wellness space? Yeah. 
So Dr. Bushell, along with Deepak Chopra and Dr. Rudy Tansy and Dr. Paul Mills and a bunch of other doctors, put out a paper in July about the available research that showed that certain yoga and meditation practices had strong anti-inflammatory and anti-stress effects on our physiology and could perhaps be considered as adjunctive treatments to COVID. So meaning not primary treatments, not to replace drugs or hospital treatments or vaccines or anything like that, but an adjunctive treatment is something which will support the healing process. And COVID is something which is attacking the inflammatory system or the inflammatory mechanism of our body as well as a host of other things too. But one of the reactions which is occurring is that there's this runaway response of our inflammatory system. And if you've heard the word cytokine storm, which occurs from this breakdown, this is caused by inflammation. As well, there are in, you know, we see now that there, I shouldn't say we, but they show now there's inflammation in the brain and inflammation in very many other organs as well from COVID infections. So they were very interested in looking at inflammation and looking also at the way that melatonin, is, the flow of melatonin is disrupted because there's the functioning of the pineal gland is disrupted through COVID. Melatonin is a very important a substance for cellular repair. It also, it does a host of things. It, it prevents the aging of the cell. It deals with our sleeping and wake cycles and it deals with inflammation. It's produced primarily from the pineal gland, but it's also produced in other tissues of the body. So melatonin is disrupted and that's an important uh, healing mechanism. A bunch of other things are happening too, like too many to name. So they put out a, a paper that was very well received and then Bill contacted me because he had read that there was a hospital in New York that was using something called proning to help patients who were losing oxygen or oxygen levels in their blood to help them regain those oxygen levels and prevent them from being intubated. So one of the things that happens from COVID is something called silent hypoxia where the oxygen levels of your blood begins to drop. Normally, we should be at around 95% or so. But what was happening is people were coming into the hospital and their oxygen levels were at 70 or 60%. They weren't even aware of it because the signaling mechanism was cut off through COVID and they immediately needed to be put on oxygen. Otherwise, they would begin to fade very quickly. And one of the things that they noticed was that by keeping patients on their backs, oxygen levels had a hard time coming up. But if they would turn them over to rest on their front, then their oxygen levels would start to come back up. And one of the reasons for this is, is that we have more lung tissue in the back of our body than we do in the front. So our back lungs are about 60% of the surface area of our lungs. And the front part is only about 40% up here. As well, we have gravity pushing down on the front of the lungs when we're on our backs. So we have a smaller surface area combined with gravity, which is changing the way that the tiny parts of the lung sacs are able to expand. That becomes compromised and eventually the patients end up being intubated. So to prevent that, they'd flip them over on their bellies, put them over some like a special type of a chair and help them to regain their oxygen absorption levels up. So Bill contacted me about this and he wondered if there was anything, any links within yoga. And I said that this proning position looked like things that we naturally do in yoga, such as child's pose or an active proning position would be downward facing dog or there's makadasana. So there's a lot of different asanas that we are doing in yoga that mimic proning uh, as well. With deep breathing, one of the things that we want to do is we want to breathe into the backs of our lungs near our kidneys and expand that area through pranayama. So we're not breathing high in the chest in pranayama. We want the breath to come down to the lower lungs and expand out through the entire capacity of the diaphragm. 
to expand outwards and back. So that's how we access the back part of our lungs where we have this surface area. So I said to him that, yeah, there's a bunch of asanas that will mimic proning. And as well, there are particular breathing practices which specifically move breath towards this back surface area. So we started developing something we call yogic enhanced proning. And the idea is to create this as a preparedness model for people to start learning how to breathe and learning how to access this part of their bodies. And that maybe it could be helpful for people before they get sick or if they do get sick, you know, to keep them breathing so it prevents them from going to the next stages such as intubation. And one of the reasons that we are working on this is that there are many reports from the hospitals of people who practice the deep breathing, even while in the hospital, are able to ward off the next stages of COVID, which is intubation for people who can't breathe anymore. One other important thing as well is that we know that yoga in its anti-inflammatory capacity helps to deal with diseases that are caused by high inflammatory levels in the body, such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, digestive problems, anxiety, and stress. And these are five of the main killers that we have definitely in the West and also in India. And they're all caused by or associated with high inflammation levels in the body, as well as you know lifestyle choices like poor food habits or working too much or not getting enough sleep. A high amount of the COVID deaths are associated with comorbidities such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, digestive disorders, and things like that. So if we can introduce theoretically or hypothetically these practices to a larger part of the population, not only would we deal with the hypoxic issues and the inflammation issues, but maybe we could have some impact on comorbidities as well. So there's a few things happening within the model that we're looking at, and we are working with universities and some hospitals as well. So it's not just some idiot yoga guy from New York spouting his mouth off. Um, and it's really a group of people who are, are very well trained in these things and are really concerned about trying to see how they can help in, in different ways. Because there's so many things that COVID is causing that you need like 80 different drugs just to deal with all of the things that are being affected. The gut brain access is being affected. The, the lungs are being affected. There's the cytokine storm, there's brain inflammation, there's so many different things. So what Dr. Bushell is proposing is like, okay, let's look at something which is addressing inflammation, addressing the vagal complex that is, you know, modulating inflammation and see how these things could be of help. Thank you for that as well, uh, because this is something that, that we need and simple things like deep breathing when when you're in prone position and they are part of our most of the yogic routines, whether you do the Hatha tradition or the Ayanga tradition or the Ashtanga tradition, irrespective, but these simple things can make such a huge difference and I think more importantly, save lives and that's what we need right now. So let me just switch gears and, and go in a different direction and ask you about Urban Yogi, the life camp for the kids that you work with. And today, the day we are recording, it's October 2nd. It's uh, Mahatma Gandhi's birth anniversary. And one of the foundations, one of the pillars that he worked with is nonviolence, ahimsa. Um, and that's one of the pillars for the yoga community as well as it comes from the Patanjali Yoga Sutras. Now, the children, the young adults that you work with, uh, you help them produce gun violence. And another sutra in the yogic tradition talks about karana, right? Maitri karana mudita upekshana. Now, with what's going on around the world right now, we'll talk about the U.S. because that's where you are. With what's going on in terms of racism in different parts of the country, what are you trying to do from a yogic perspective with these kids that they respond in a way which is in accordance to a yogic lifestyle and in a way that, you know, after they're done making the changes around them, they're not regretting their actions. 
they are steadfast in their belief that their way of life is correct. So the Urban Yogis started in 2012, and it started because a woman named Erica Ford, who runs an organization called Life Camp in Queens, issued a challenge to Deepak Chopra. And what she said to him was, all that meditation and yoga is good for white folks, but I don't see how it's going to help my black community out here. We got a lot of problems. And, um, you know, that stuff is expensive, and I don't think it would work. So she said, why don't you come out here if you think anyone can do it and meditate with my group? And Erica has been working for the past 25 years to reduce gun violence in New York. And where she lives, there used to be very high levels of gun violence. Uh, they've come down tremendously because of her community activism. So Deepak came out there. He meditated with 75 youth and 25 adults, all who had been impacted by gun violence. And they responded well. And that evening, after he got back from Queens, he was coming to our temple because we had a festival occurring that night. I don't remember which it was. And he said to me, I spent today out in the hood meditating with these kids. And I said, well, if you ever want to do yoga with them, let me know. I'd be happy to come out with you because I had been doing up to that point a lot of work with kids in schools. So I, I went with him the next time. And um, Erica was really skeptical about some white guy coming out to Queens to do yoga with these young black kids. And they liked it. And so... Deepak and I committed ourselves to coming out every month for a year to work with her group. Then the next summer came around and Erica asked if she could send some of the youth from her youth summer program to do yoga with me over the summer. And I said, sure. So four young adults came and they were really skeptical coming in. We read out loud from different texts. We read things that Mahatma Gandhi had written and Martin Luther King and some of Deepak Chopra's works. And they were feeling good. They liked it. The yoga made them feel better. At the end of the summer, one of the students, um, Shaquille Johnston, said, can I bring some of my friends to do some yoga too? And I said, sure. So he brought three of his friends, four of his friends, in fact. They came every week for another year to practice with me. And during that time, we read Seven Spiritual Laws of Success together. And they started realizing that their thoughts and their actions had real-world consequences. And that if they wanted to begin to mold their lives in the direction they wanted it to go, they had to watch their thoughts and actions and emotions. And they intuited this stuff. They could feel it coming to them from the yoga. And one of the things that happened over that year was that I also committed myself to them. They didn't just commit themselves to coming to the school, but I committed myself to being present for them every week. And whether they were practicing well or not, or showing up or not, like I was going to be there. If they were late or if they were on time, I was going to be there. And that helped them to trust me, to know that I wasn't just some guy who was like, you know, floating in and out of their lives, pretending to have an impact when I wasn't really fully present. So my commitment was to be present, to actually be there for these young people who were interested in learning yoga and learning about themselves. And then at the end of the year, when this trust naturally developed, I asked them if they'd like to learn how to become teachers. And they didn't know they could do that. And I said, of course you can. I said, it's, you know, it's not that hard to teach yoga. You've already been practicing for a year. And so the first teacher training I ever did was with these young people from Queens. And then the next step was to try to get them work teaching yoga. And we did that through the public school system. So to date, the only teacher trainings I've ever done, and I've done several of them, have only been for the urban yogis. Uh, I've never trained anyone to be a teacher outside of that. I've had assistants in my yoga school who I've said, you know, you definitely can assist me here, but I didn't, I couldn't make them teachers. That only happens out of my sort. But the urban yogis are the only time I've gone against the contract, which I have with my sort, which is not to do teacher trainings, 
I've done it with these young kids. And you know what? They need that training and they like it. And uh, in that training, we do a lot of different stuff. They learn how to teach Ashtanga Yoga up until Janu Shirshasana A and then finishing poses. They learn a few simple pranayamas. They learn some yoga therapy. We read seven spiritual laws of success. They learn a little bit about philosophy. And then they're ready to teach young people in schools and, and guide them and help them learn how to relax. And so my role within Life Camp and the Urban Yogis falls under the therapeutic services category. What I deal with is I deal with stress and environmental stress. And to deal with environmental stress, if you can't change the environment outside, you change the environment inside. And that means to deal with fight or flight, sympathetic nervous system, and learn what the relaxation response is inside you through Shavasana and things like that. So that's what I do. That's my contribution to trying to help reduce the gun violence. And then we also have programs for people who have lost children or had children injured or crippled through gun violence as well. I sit on the board as the acting board chair of Life Camp itself. And as the Urban Yogis, uh, now that first group that was coming to me in 2012, they now lead all the teacher trainings. And I'm there as their assistant to help them out with whatever stuff they need help with. And I'm immensely, immensely proud of them. So empowering, so powerful, and such a confidence builder. And I think uh, that's what a lot of these people are looking for. Once they have the confidence, they can go out in the real world that they're valued, their contributions are valued. Well, more power to you to do to such things. So we're getting towards the end of our time. This question is along the lines of the book that you've written, One Simple Thing, and the app that you have done, the breathing app, and Yoga 365. And I was thinking about it when I was going through all three of them separately. And, you know, there was this one continuous stream of thought that kept coming to me that everything is simplified. And uh, I personally believe that Ashtanga Yoga is a very simple practice, but it has been made complicated or whatever the reason is. And I think what you have done is said that to make changes in your life are very simple. If you follow these simple rules, make a routine, and you keep building, building, building up. And I heard in one of your interviews, and this was a long time ago, I'm not so sure if it's exactly the way you said it or not, but you said if you keep adding five rupees or $5 or something like that, or maybe it was rupees or 50 cents, I can't, I can't remember. But if you keep adding that money every day after sometime you'll have a lot of money, right? And if you keep doing the same routine again and again, maybe five minutes of yoga or breathing, you'll have this capacity build up, which will change your life. And to make things that simple, people think that everything is so complicated. You know, I can't do yoga and, you know, they have, they have the hindrance of starting and, and other things. But my question is, what is this thing that you feel will keep you moving in a direction that it changes your life, that things become permanent because people start things because they are simple, but they can't continue. I want something new. I want something different, right? But in Ashtanga, we do the same asana every day, but it's different, right? You may listen to the same breathing every day through the app, but it's different. So I want to ask you, how do you continue with that same faith, the Shraddha that you talked about? Well, I think you have a few questions in there. And I'll answer the last question first. How do I continue? So I've been practicing Ashtanga Yoga now for 29 years, since 1991. I was doing Shivananda Yoga before I did the Ashtanga Yoga. I continue with it because I like it. I have this impression from when I first did it in 1991 that I was doing yoga. So this was the first asana practice that I did where when I did the asana practice, I felt like I was doing yoga on all levels. And um, before that, 
the practices had been very beneficial, but I felt that the asana itself was just working on my body. And that's why, and then pranayama was for my breath and meditation was for my spirit. With Ashtanga yoga, I felt different. I felt everything's connecting now. All the pieces are coming together. And I still feel that with this practice. And so that's why I continue to do it. It is part of my pattern. You know, it's part of my rhythm. And I go through periods where I can practice more, where I can practice less. But that rhythm is always in there somewhere, you know? These days, I don't practice complicated asanas from Ashtanga Yoga anymore because over the years I've worked a lot and traveled a lot. And that hasn't been great for my body. I don't have the same strength or stamina that I used to. But I still feel the practice in me. So I do those things that I can still do. And I enjoy them. Now, I also agree with you that yoga should be simple. And that, in fact, from the Hindu tradition way and the yogic traditions way that these things are presented is often simple. There are little details that can get complicated. Philosophical things get very, very complicated. But the practical things are pretty straightforward. And those practical things get overcomplicated in the burgeoning marketplace of yoga. And this is largely driven, I think, by Westerners who have overcomplicated things. Or because we haven't really understood things well, and we don't understand the philosophy, we don't understand the history, then we make up for that by coming up with overcomplicated ideas that we've imagined. And I see that in the Ashtanga yoga world as well. For example, there's this thing that so many people seem to teach now called the gateway postures, that this pose is a gateway asana for other asanas to occur. And so there's entire workshops about gateway asanas. This has been made up by Western people. This is not something ever that I experienced in India. You know what's a gateway? Walking in to the classroom. That's your gateway asana. Everything else is going to build one after the other, you know, one by one, as they say. You know, adjustment workshops, the adjustment clinics, teaching people how to give adjustments. This has led to a very strange understanding of the purpose of giving adjustments and the over-dependence on them as well. So there are developments that I see in the West that I don't think have been positive that relate to asana practice. So this is just some examples and it's okay to give a critique within the systems that you exist in. You have to. If you're not able to critique the systems that you exist within, then you people don't grow and you don't grow as well. And over the years, I've had to examine my own approach to teaching too, to see how have I done things in a way that have not been helpful. And there have been plenty of those instances. And I need to be able to speak about those freely and acknowledge them and own up to them if I'm going to make critiques about the way that other things are existing in the system I work within too. So that's okay. That's how things improve. So in this field or in this setting of yoga, where yoga has been branded in a very particular way in the West. For example, when I was working with the urban yogis at first, they were like, black people don't do yoga. That's something for white people. That's a rich white person thing. Why would they think that? Well, why would these kids in, in this area of New York City think that? Because that's how yoga has been branded. That's how it's been sold. That's how it's been privileged. And so it's up to us to, to change that um, and to say, hey, you know what? It's not that hard. It's not that complicated. And it is accessible. So one of the things that inspires me is the way there are many people throughout the world who have helped to make yoga simplified and accessible for people who don't have access to these practices. And the Breathing App and Yoga 365 are kind of um, my very small contributions to how can you make a breathing practice accessible to people who need to do some breathing to calm themselves down, but they don't have time to go to a teacher and they're not going to do the Art of Living, you know, Sudarshan Kriya course, and they're going to learn the Wim Hof method and they're not going to go to a yoga class, but they need to do something. So we made this breathing app. It's free. It's been downloaded over 100,000 times. It guides you in a very simple paced breathing, which downregulates your stress response. That's all it does. Super simple, basic. And if you want to learn more, there's plenty of places. Go to the internet. The internet is filled with stuff you can learn.
The Yoga 365 is the same thing. Yoga 365 is not free because um, I've had a, a team helping to build it and they also all need to get paid. And on occasion, I need to make some money too, but it's not very expensive. And the basic idea is, okay, you want to do some yoga, you want to do some meditation, you don't have time. Do you have one minute a day? Do you have two minutes a day? Can you raise your arm over your head? If you can raise your arm over your head and even one of them, and you have one or two minutes to spare, then you can do yoga. And now let's get started. And we're going to do it little by little by little by little by little. By the end of the year, from giving a minute a day to yourself, you're going to learn a whole ton of stuff. And you will see these micro practices into your day. And micro practices have a very powerful effect on neuroplasticity, on habit building, on self-perception that will begin to create shifts in you. Some people are really good jumping in, doing an hour every day. Most people are not like that. So this is for something who are most people. You don't have time, but you need to do something. And so that's what, you know, that's what this is. I think it's a great service and it's going to help so many people when Yoga 365 comes about. The way I understand it, that it's going to be a different routine every day that's going to be accessible to people all 365 days or something new that they can do every day. Is that correct? Each day for four days of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, you'll get one simple asana. And they build up throughout the course of the year, but they start off really simply. Like, for example, the first one is standing up straight and just inhaling your right arm up and exhaling it down to learn how to link breath and movement. And that's the first day. The second day you do two arms. And so Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday are postures. Wednesday is a breathing practice. Saturday is a meditation. And on Sunday, you get one video that links all of the week's practices together. So it's a six minute video. One day of the week is, is a little bit longer, but all of the other days are within one to two minutes. So yes, and you will get this sent to your phone and then you just do the video a couple times during the day or one time during the day. And uh, you can only do the next day after you've completed the first day. And if you miss a day, you can make it up by doing the day that came before. That's our cheat day. Right. We're looking forward to that early next year. So before we end, we usually ask a few questions about your life. You can answer them in one word, one sentence, one paragraph, whatever you feel that's accessible to you. So are you ready? I'm ready. This is a hard one for me. You know that I have a hard time answering questions in short sentences, even this one. That's why I say just one word. All right. So our first question is one place that you would like to visit. That I haven't visited before? Maybe you have visited it. The only place that I really miss right now during COVID is India. Any specific place in India? I'd like to go back to, uh, I'd like to go to Gomuk. Have you trekked to Gomuk? No. I just have a story that I want to tell here that I, I visited Gangotri a few years ago and I didn't know that the Ganga originated from Gomuk. And we were in the first week of when Gangotri had opened up in Uttarkashi and the trek was closed. And I was like, I feel cheated coming here all the way that I'm not able to go to Gomuk. So that just uh, reminded me of it. Uh, we'll have to go there together. Gangotri is one of my favorite places in all of India. I love it there so much. Mine too, mine too. It's so beautiful. It's such a special place. It is, yeah. All right, next one. A childhood memory that brings joy to your mind. My first guitar. Okay, so we'll get a few questions ahead and ask uh, a favorite song that comes to your mind that you really like. If I had to be stranded on a desert island for the rest of my life and I could only bring one song with me, it would be Sweet Thing by David Bowie. Can you sing that for us? No, I definitely cannot. But uh, if he request you to sing that for us, would you? Well, it's, a, it's an eight minute long song and half of it is instrumental. Oh. So, and no, you don't want to hear my singing voice. All right, we'll, we'll ask you to chant towards the end for us. That's then. fine. A person you would like to meet in history. 
going back in time. Veda Vyasa. All right. The next one is a book or a film that's really close to your heart. Well, those are going to be two different things. So film, I really did love The Fifth Element by Luc Besson. And a book, any book, you want fiction, you want... Any book, any book that, that comes to your mind that may have changed your life. Oh, well, definitely, you know, it's not my favorite book, but it was a life-changing book, was um, Autobiography of a Yogi. That was, and you, you know what actually was even more life-changing was Be Here Now by Ram Das. That was one of my first spiritual books. So that really changed my life. That really opened up a whole new door for me. What a fantastic book and what an amazing yep. guy. And, you know, him, him passing away. <sighs> yeah, what a loss for all of us. Uh, last one. A mantra, if you can chant anything for us. What would you like me to chant? Anything out of your memory. Anything that's very close to your heart. Uh, all of them. They're all close to my heart. I love all of the mantras equally that I've learned. Uh, do you want um, uh, some closing prayer of some sort or do you want some, what would you like? A closing prayer would be great. Okay. Oh. Sarve bhavantu sukhinaha. Sarve santu niramayaha. Sarve bhadrani pashantu. Ma kashchitukabhag pavit. Om Shanti 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 Shri Guru Bhyona Maha Harihi Om Tatsat Shri Krishna Paramastu Thank you so much. That was such a beautiful way to close our time together. Eddie, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. It has been joyful. It has been informative. And I've really enjoyed every minute listening to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And you have a wonderful podcasting voice. Thank Relaxed you. and calm, smooth, chill, interested. <sighs> uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to our show. If you like listening to us, if you like our work, please share this podcast with your friends and family. Thank you so much. Thank you.